Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, Jonathan Kroll, partner of Rare Breed VC Fund, shares his winding path coming out of UC Santa Barbara. From teaching himself how to code to launching two startups at the school to attending Cornell's Johnson School of Management for his MBA many years later, Jonathan explains how he successfully pivoted to venture capital by landing an internship with Andreessen Horowitz in their market development group. Enjoy. Jonathan, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks, Patrick. Great to be here. So it'd be awesome if you could just give the listeners a short summary of your bio. So uh, I'm Jonathan Kroll. I'm a partner at Rare Breed Ventures. We're a $10 million pre-seed and seed fund. We're on our first fund and I'm currently raising uh, fund two, which should hopefully be significantly larger. Um, before that, I was at a fund called Sparrow Ventures, which is a single LP fund based in Silicon Valley, backed by PR Midiar. And then prior to that, I was at Andreessen Horowitz um, on an operating team and then um, kind of moved a bit horizontally. So um, that's like the second half of my career. The first half um, was all entrepreneurial. I started a company right out of college, did that for six years, and then um, started another company sort of accidentally, and then went to business school, figured, okay, I spent eight years uh, being a founder, going really deep, I kind of wanted to explore the opposite of that, which is, you know, going really, really broad. And so in the tech world, you can either basically be a journalist, uh, you could work in an accelerator, or you could be a VC, or I guess you could throw like um, a startup studio in there as well. But like, there's not many arenas where you get to go really, really broad and, and broadly cover the early stage world of, of startups and venture capital. So uh, that's kind of what got me into VC. For sure. And then you're from the Santa Barbara area? Yes, I grew up in Santa Barbara and currently located in uh, San Francisco, but uh, with a couple of years in New York. Awesome. So let's go all the way back to just kind of uh, UC, you were at UC, right? So did you know when you were there, it looks like you were really into languages, but you weren't into like uh, like startups or, or maybe you were, maybe you were starting businesses then. I'd love to just hear, um, did the entrepreneurial bug hit you early and what happened kind of for, for you to kind of just found a business right out of school and yeah. the traditional route. So I'm not one of those people who like was selling candy bars or like flipping bikes and stuff like that as a kid and making yeah. a ton of money. That wasn't me, but I did <laughs> my first entrepreneurial venture, I guess was, I was a huge nerd, right? So I uh, also was really into aviation. So I started a uh, virtual airline, which used to be, I think it's still a thing, but it's all based around Microsoft flight simulator, like 95, 98, 2000. And, um, you know, pilots, you would, there'd be actual people who join as pilots. And I started a, a virtual airline, had my own fleet, had all these people who, you know, quote unquote, worked for me. Uh, and then I sort of like 
like a simulator. It was like a game, like a SimCity kind of thing. So imagine if it's, it's exactly like, you know, Microsoft Flight Simulator, you know, at the time was really single player. Got it. And so people wanted to like join, you know, simulated airlines and feel like what it would be like, like huge nerds, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we were the people who likes, who like, who love commercial aviation. We're not even talking fighter plants. We're talking like 757s, yeah, stuff yeah. like that. Love it. So um, yeah, people come together. So I founded this virtual airline and then ran it for a couple of years. I was like, 12 when I started it, but, um, it got pretty big and I like, you know, sold it. I burnt out, <laughs> I had burnt out. Um, you know, you have to make all these routes, you have to manage all your fleet. Um, you have to like keep logging the hours for all these. Was it actually like bringing in money? Oh no, no, none of this is about money. I mean, it was all just time, about like community and just a love for planes and that type of thing. Honestly, it was a way to enhance the game because it. it made it multiplayer and, and for people who are nerds about uh, ADA, commercial aviation. It was a way to like nerd out hardcore and fly real routes and like kind of like pretend. Uh, so you were like flying actual routes. Is it like real time? Like you'd actually <laughs> fly like and you'd have to spend like four hours on the computer. I can't believe I'm admitting this publicly, but yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, so like if you're flying like a transcon from like SF to New York, you know, you're sitting there for four and a half, five hours and you're flying the actual uh, like standard terminal arrivals and stuff that, you know, you know, the procedures, or at least close there to like the procedures that like real pilots follow, you know, because we're, we're so all, like, all next, taught when we're 12. So your next career will be as a, as actual pilot, maybe? You're, yeah. If I like were to be, I would pull like a Richard Branson or John Travolta, right? Uh, probably more like a John Travolta where he just like wanted to be a pilot, became an actor, made a ton of money, and then now has like his own, I think he has like an old 707 Qantas, you know, old vintage airliner and flies that around i think that's the best way to be a pilot right is to just be <laughs> independently wealthy and do it yeah. for the joy of it and then not uh get to lose that bug as a as a pilot flying people day in day out but that's so enough on a career i didn't follow <laughs> so like when you were when you were at yeah, uc santa barbara were you um just tell me like the path like were you doing internships like the typical things like sophomore year summer or I have a very atypical background than what you might expect. So, you know, so to say, like, when I was like 12, 13, love technology, it was all about it, it was building websites, like really early on that. I remember AOL, I was building uh, websites, like, when I was like 10 or so, you know, yeah. with, with dial-up internet, figured that out on my own, and just really, like, loved that. And then somewhere along the line, between there and college, I sort of, like, lost that love. And so I went to college with, like, a different idea. I wanted to be a diplomat. Uh, so I was going to join like the U.S. Foreign Service, and I was really good at language and really good at learning it. And I just had that brain for some reason. So I decided, well, to kind of like decide to some degree where I end up in the world. So I have a degree in French, Spanish, and Portuguese. Um, I also took uh, a lot of Italian and even took some Catalan in there. And so that was my goal, right? I was going to go join, you know, basically the government after graduating. At the time, that would have been 2007. So um, what happened was like in 2006, 2007. That was a crazy time in the world and a crazy time for technology. That was like the peak of Web 2 or like just the actually the initial like uptick of Web 2. Yeah. Kind of like what we're going through now with, with Web 3 and crypto. But um, iPhone came out the summer I graduated college. iPhone 1, you know, you know, Facebook was like two years old as a startup. YouTube is an independent startup. All this stuff was happening really, really fast. And I was like a senior in college watching this thinking like, there's no way I can go join the government. I'm too excited about this. So I actually like finished up my you know, classes and go home. And then like, I taught myself how to code because it's really good at languages. There's this like 
there's a true like it doesn't there's definitely like an analogous relationship from like computer languages to natural languages so I, for whatever makes my brain a sponge for language made it a brain for or a sponge for you know computer right. languages exactly yeah. so i got it really quickly and yeah. loved that and i was obsessed with it because to me it was like wow in, a, in theory you can like create basically infinite value from nothing no inputs no raw materials yeah i have to get involved in this so i graduated and I started a company right away and I didn't know anything. And I was a guy with a degree in languages. So it was a very atypical background, no internships, none of that. Cause I had this path for like 90% of college that I was going to follow. Oh, so you knew like you were going to do the coding and stuff when you're like a sophomore or junior? No, I was going to be a diplomat. I was going to, Oh, you sorry. Yeah, you're going to be the diplomat. And then, then suddenly it was like a 90 degree or 180 degree turn. You're like, no, actually just kidding. I'm going to go teach myself coding and go to move to Silicon Valley. Exactly. So that obviously happened in a year from like, yeah. Keeping my interest to starting a company. And so did you think about ever joining a startup or you just realized they're never going to hire me because, you know, no one wants a triple language major? That, and at the time, it wasn't the same environment as it is today. This is 15 years ago. So it wasn't as easy to know, you know, what startups to join. There definitely weren't as many startups at all. So what was the idea and what was the first startup? Tell, me, tell us so, about it. Yeah, so I come from a family of lawyers. And the only thing I, I you know, besides being a diplomat, I ever knew, um, well, actually, I knew I never wanted to be a lawyer. So yeah. that's the only other like career sort of inclination I had early on. Yeah. Um, because all of my family, my dad, my grandparents, my grandmother who was born in 1915, was a, a, a lawyer in the 40s when barely any women were lawyers. And so everybody. And I so I knew what it was like to, you know, be in that environment because the law kind of is all encompassing. Like my dad's always working. Our garage was full of those banker boxes and mm -hmm. um, always on calls or knee deep in stack of papers. And so, you know, over time growing up in that, um, I knew a lot about how the law and law firms worked. I knew a lot about the problems in that very traditional industry, like basically you know, had realized like how untouched it was by technology and how much, you know, there was to potentially gain, you know, for everybody in that industry. Mm -hmm. um, if technology was the backbone of it versus just, you know, pen and paper. Um, so I figured kind of very naively actually that like, okay, well, I am going to try to, um, start a legal tech startup. And the idea was that, um, we wanted to democratize access to the top 1% of lawyers and law firms starting in California. And that's because lawyers and law firms, the best lawyers, um, don't advertise. They see it as beneath them. You know, it's firm, firm and firm. That's the name of, of most of those top funds. None of them have a a brand name and so they they're not running google ads or anything like that they all get they all subsist on referrals from other attorneys basically yeah and you know for the big dollar amount type of cases like like class action or personal injury or like insurance bad faith type of things the client never pays a an hourly fee it's all contingency based because the dollar amounts are so huge the lawyers actually want to take their 30 40 percent cut yeah so it doesn't matter who you are it doesn't matter if you're in the network it doesn't matter if you speak english or an illegal immigrant but you'll never find your way to the top lawyers and law firms because you, you're not in like the second degree network from right. those guys but there's no reason for it. it and it actually it's like mutually beneficial for them to be those two sides of the market to be connected so we, we built this like algorithmic uh, out, out, excuse me, algorithmically driven marketplace to kind of like take the man on the street, get all of the salient details about their legal matter, and then determine like what that's, who that's appropriate for, 
and as far as like what types of attorneys and then try to like go deeper and then match them on like basically like a dating site like other variables to increase the likelihood of a successful like engagement between a, a lawyer and a client which is a very problematic relationship in in, in a lot of those um lawyer client relationships for, for a variety of reasons. And our revenue model was tied to that success. So we had a vested interest in that. And so you ran it for a while. Did it for six years. You know, I knew nothing. I started with basically just a lot of very overly eager optimism and I learned a ton. I mean, I, I learned a ton. So six years in, uh, I'd raised about a million dollars, had a good team going, but basically ultimately realized I'd built a company that could not scale and, and really was starved for cash because we subsisted on the, you know, our cut of the legal fee um, that the lawyers made, which was also a very difficult thing to, to even be able to, to take in revenue. To, that collect, way. Have, to even collect. Well, yeah, typically that's illegal. Typically that only lawyers and law firms can, can collect legal fees. And so we had to, we were, went through this really long process to become certified by the state bar of California. We were like oh my gosh. totally regulated. It took a year to, to do that. We were audited every year, but we could never nail the like, success piece of what made a successful engagement between lawyers and clients. Plus lawyers never used our technology, our software systems to like update cases. And so we basically had either spent all this money to acquire these, these cases, sent them to lawyers and they just went nowhere or we had successful engagements, but then we didn't know what was going on with the case. The lawyer forgot about us and, yeah. you know, basically became a collections agency on the back end of that. So it just wasn't uh, a good business model. And I learned that like the hard way. Yeah. Yeah. We spent uh, grinding years grinding. So then what do I, what, what was this pivot or what was this new whole company you started? Cause you, you kind of started, decided, okay, this isn't working, shut it down. And then sure. Well, I actually sold it, sold sold it? Okay. basically for parts, basically got out at par, I didn't make any money yep. and I didn't make any money for most of the years that I worked there, you know, yep. Um, so it was, I lost money, but you know, on an equity basis, it was even right. Yeah, and yeah. it became just an advertising company that like pooled lawyer dollars who wanted to hide behind like a proxy brand, Got it. but still receive the cases. And that's not, my heart wasn't in that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I, figured, I figured, okay, well I learned, I know so much more than I did when I started, but I also know how much more I don't know. And I wasn't aware of yeah. that previously. So I decided, okay, I'm going to go to business school. I think this is a good time and I, I need that because I've never had a formal business education. Remember, I had a degree in languages. So I started to study for the GMAT. And <laughs> funny thing happened on the way to business school. Um, I started to really notice, like, hey, the test prep industry, especially in higher ed, is super, I don't want to say predatory. I'd say like the power dynamics are not in the favor of the consumer because lifetime value basically is the equivalent of one sale per one application season. Nobody's coming back. Like nobody pays attention to turn attention or whatever in test prep because, you know, most people either take the test, they get in or they take the test or they, and they didn't score well and they just don't go. Very few like come back for another season. So you don't care about that. So that also, what that means is that your product can be mediocre. It has to just be good enough to get the sale. It's all about sales. It's not about the product or your outcomes. So like that's the disservice of the yeah. customer who, who's a student, right? In the you're, case talking of about G- like, you're talking about like GMAT prep here, for example. Exactly, exactly. And so in the case of the GMAT student, right? Like GMAT's a very difficult test. It's, you know, your score is relative to the scores of other students around the world, right? So on the quantitative section, section especially, it's very difficult for Americans. 
to score well because the way we learn math is, is like less rigorous from a K-12. Somehow I scored higher on verbal. It was like, I yeah. somehow did really well in math. <laughs> that's not uncommon. Yeah. Well, that's. No, you're also up against people who are going to business school who tend to be better in math. So math tends to be the harder one to score. It does. Uh, there so we started. So we decided to start there. Um, thinking, and, and I, I got ahead of myself, but what ultimately happened is I teamed up with my GMAT tutors, who are just these two independent guys who had like focused just on the quant section and it actually developed their own extremely in-depth curriculum. It was like a, they, they originally wanted to publish it. And so it would have been the equivalent of about 4,000 pages, but um, it, it actually um, became a software platform that we developed together. So we all teamed up. I like led the charge because, you know, I knew how to build software. Mm-hmm. And so then re- like recruited a team uh, we decided to actually build the best product out there to help students succeed on the GMAT. We went into the GRE and that was really successful. I think it, you know, it still is one of the top uh, you know, GMAT, GRE, you know, test prep companies out that's there awesome. so called Target Test Prep. And that's just still focused on the math or, or is it? Uh, yeah, primarily. Primarily. Cool. That's awesome. So what, how did you, what happened there? Like at the end, you exited somehow, you, they bought you out. What, what happened? So I realized you know, early on, right from the get-go. That, like, Wait, and this my, was through business school? This is before business school. Oh, before, okay. Got on it. my way. On so your it's way. It's a, a kind of unexpected thing. So instead of like just studying with my tutors, I teamed up with them and spent two years with them um, building this. So, but, you know, from the get-go, I was very clear that I'm not going to stick around for more than two years because I still want to go to business school. I, I didn't want to like age out of going to a full-time business school. Right. So I was getting to that point. I was like 29 or so at the time. So. Um, talk to the listeners, talk to listeners about that aging out of the, do you feel like there's like a cutoff where if you don't go to business school, it's, it gets much harder in terms of they won't, they won't like say there's age discrimination, but there probably is right. In terms of the, well, I don't even know about that. That's, I think definitely believe that's true. Between, yeah. you, you know, you and me and everybody listening. Yeah. But I also think there's another factor, which is like your benefits diminish over time as you get more experienced. Plus, you know, if you are like, at HBS and you're 36 and the median guy or girl is 28, you know, there's a big difference there. And so that can kind of be weird as well. Your other option is the executive MBA. And that's, there's a whole other, you know, yeah. host of things to consider. It's much more expensive and, you know, it's just a different format. So for me, I wanted to go to full-time MBA. So I, I committed to two years. And at the end of that, you know, throughout this the whole time, I'm taking the GMAT, but I was also taking it for like my own edification to, um, you know, lead better, like build a product. Yeah. You know, and I was like really eating the dog food because I was also studying the GMAT. So I took the GMAT, like, I think I've taken the official GMAT like six times or something. You can only take it like four times a year, I think. So that shows you, yeah. I've taken the GRE like four or five times. So I know this sets really, really well now, but, um, you know, so, so kind of towards the end of that, I was applying for business school and decided that I, 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 was kind of disenfranchised, which like with your typical, like top business schools, HBS, Stanford at all, um, just thought for me, it was not the, you know, I'm not the banker, I'm not the consultant. I was the, the entrepreneur, uh, West Coast entrepreneur kind of guy. And I wanted to, you know, be in tech. So they'll all tell you that, you know, that's, they have pathways for that. And I think these days it's, it's gotten a lot better, but at the time I kind of went to class visits and thought, eh, you know, I don't really think I fit in here. And so did you, did you like go to Stanford or apply to Stanford? Stanford seems like it might've been a good match given your entrepreneurial background. It would have, I just think, you know, I, I did apply. I didn't get in there. 
<laughs> but well, like, uh, yeah, it's like a 4% acceptance rate or something, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you know, I, I wasn't upset about it because I felt like it was just a, a smaller, uh, a scaled down version of the general demographic of other top business schools. Yeah. I thought for a moment, I'm really just not going to go to business school. Hmm. And so what, what changed? What do you mean? Did you like, uh, so what changed was I found a program randomly uh, called Cornell Tech, which is is a campus actually of Cornell, but there's seven degree programs there. And one of them is an MBA program. It was, it was a very new experiment to um, have a cross-functional and, and um, integrated uh, MBA experience across like technical functions as well as like business versus just being in a business school silo. Yeah. With just MBA students. So you were kind of playing with the idea of going there, but then ended up at the full-time program, right? Well, so that is a full-time program. So I did go there. Okay. So you did the, oh, the Cornell tech. Yeah, that's right. So I ultimately went there. I mean, at first I was skeptical. So I thought it was just marketing like everywhere else about, you know, being open for tech. But the, the more I like peeled back the layers, I realized, wow, this is really substantive. Like, you know, this guy who's the CTO, former CTO of Twitter, he like, you know, is one of the practitioners who teaches a course like Eric Schmidt. Um, is on is the was the chairman of the board of governors i think he's still on the board the dean at the time was on the board of amazon and so like that trickled down there were like real substantive um there was real substantive involvement from the tech industry and the program specialized so like your peers none of my peers maybe one or two of them were bankers in my business school program but they all okay, had is that like is there, are there other places like that or is, is cornell unique in the sense of like having a like, and, and so what did that even mean in terms of being in the Cornell tech slash MBA program? Like, are you doing like learning how to code as well um, on the side? Or is like, it, is it more just like a business degree with a tech bent to it? It's sort of all of the above. So, I mean, you, you spend your time across two campuses, you know, you're at the main campus, the main, you know, main business school to do all your core. And then you move to the Cornell tech campus in New York city, which is on Roosevelt Island. And I was part of the first class there and it's a beautiful campus. Like, I think it's like a $2 billion campus they built on the Southern tip of Roosevelt Island. My, the view from my apartment on campus was insane. You know, I could see. I've been there. Yeah. yeah. I lived in New York and they, I played soccer on Roosevelt Island. I was like, Oh, awesome. Amazing. So, you know, yeah. Yeah. So it's a really cool place. And it's like one of the best hidden gems in the city. It's quiet at night there. The Dwayne Reed closes at like seven. It closes in general, but it closes at seven. It shows you how like sleepy it gets. But yeah. it's like, you know, just like 10 minutes, either on the tram or on the F from Manhattan. Um, so, but what happens at Cornell Tech is that there's seven, there's seven degree programs across like three schools. There's business, there's law, but then there's like three or four um, engineering programs. And a third of the curriculum is integrated. So you don't, you don't, you, you do learn how to code if you don't know, um, but mainly the backgrounds they pull from are the tech people. And um, what happens is like you end up building a product cross-functionally like where you're the only MBA you have like three engineers one is like a master of engineering student the other might be like operations research or, or some other specialized master's program in CS and yeah. just like the real world right where you're not going to be just around other MBAs you want to be a product manager that's going to be your life and like there's a huge age difference right but like you know for me it was like 10 years from me to the rest of my teammates and that was like pretty standard um, but it mirrors the real world. And that's, I think that's super valuable. So you build, we built a data science tool for two Sigma ventures, uh, one semester, and then everybody builds a startup or used to 
make it so everybody built a startup. Now you have the choice, I believe. But um, so then you come together again in the fall and build. And so, yeah, tell me, so it sounds like you loved it. It was a great program. It's very, very difficult because it's very, you, you take on all this extra stuff yeah. over like typical business school. And, and there's not, it's not the program where you're like flying around the world, hanging out because you finished your core and like, you're just part yeah. of it. It's not, it's not that it's way tense. Like, you know, there's a lot of 4am nights and it was hard. It was really hard. And so as you're kind of you're approaching that, that critical summer, like where a lot of people are doing your classmates are doing internships, what were you doing? Just building? Um, just building. And then, um, you know, trying to figure out what came next. Because at that point, I was only aspirationally like wanting to get into VC. But, you know, going from business school to VC in earnest is very difficult. And I knew that. Yeah. So, like, what did you do? How did you start planning? It's like, how did you start planning it? What was the, yeah. what was the path so, here? So the first thing I did is I leveled with myself kind of to, to and that's to say, like, I, I knew that the odds were low. I knew that there was like a good, potentially like 50% chance or lower, I wasn't going to make it if I was even like, and that's a hundred percent committed to, to trying. Um, so I knew that that was possible. So I figured like, well, you know, there's no path and there's no like recruiting cycle. There's none of that. And it's a very insular industry. So the only thing that I had going for me is that I had been an entrepreneur, but I hadn't like raised money from like big funds and had a huge network of VC. It's not even close. Yeah. So um, I just, figured like, well, I'm going to network the shit out of this, right? I'm going to go like meet every VC I can and try to help them in some way. Because I, what I do have are founders, in my Rolodex and have, you know, companies that I'm aware of. And so I got involved with student VC groups. I initially thought, you know, okay, well, that's really going to help. Got involved with Big Red Ventures, um, which is run by MBA students at Cornell. Um, you know, I thought about doing like the dorm room fund type of stuff. Ultimately, in hindsight, um, those weren't valuable at all. Okay. I can't speak for any specific program that I wasn't in, but like, you know, at least for me, I felt like, and now I know, you know, this is really an apprenticeship business and it's hard to mirror that without, you know, being fully immersed. Do you feel like just having that on your CV at least helped a little bit in terms of like the networking? Mm, no, no, no. <laughs> no, not at all. Well, like, I, I really, no, no, not in the slightest. I mean, you think that when you're a student, you're like, oh, this is so cool because it's hard to get in, you know, because all, there's a ton of demand from other MBA students and other, you know, people, uh, you know, if it's open to other programs or other schools, which some are like, there's all of this demand. So it's really selective. So it's hard to get in. So you feel like, okay, well, I've made it and this is going to really help me. But looking back, no, that would have made any difference. At it. So really, it was more about just the, the relationships you were developing just through the through networking. Yes, I'd say this is where it gets to like non-generalizable advice because this is very specific to my situation. But when, you know, in the summer, we moved down to Cornell Tech and Rosa Island, and it was a huge um, event because this was uh, something that had started with Mayor Bloomberg. He had like made this competition for that land on Rosa Island and it ultimately went to Cornell after they beat out Stanford. And so I was the first class on that campus. So I was there for the inauguration. Uh, uh, of the campus or dedication of it. You know, the governor was there, the mayor was there, all these dignitaries were there. And so it was a big deal. And so New York City tech was paying a lot of attention, but there wasn't really like a <laughs> visitor bureau or like any institutional way for like folks who were in the industry and curious to like get involved because it was still like getting stood up on its legs and, you know, didn't have like just excess people in yeah. the administration to go just like be the ambassadors to the tech community. So I figured, okay, 
well, this is interesting. I've kind of got a sense that like New York VCs are curious about what's going on because a lot of startups do come from there. There's also an amazing program called the Runway Program, which is like one of the best kept secrets, but it's a postdoc program. It's a two-year postdoc, postdoctoral incubator for new PhDs where these guys and, and girls are commercializing their research mm. and building these like super defensible, really, really, really interesting companies. That's cool. So, so I figured I'm going to be the ambassador, you know, unofficial ambassador. It's all of that. Okay. So you kind of started what in New York primarily like going around and started going around and, yeah. and doing a lot of coffee with, chats and uh... did that, but then realized I need to do more. And so I, I wanted to up the value that I could offer them, you know, and that's what you have to do in DC. If you're looking to get in, it's like, you can't just be a guy asking for coffee chats and hoping to get a job out of that. Um, you have to kind of like really just on blind faith invest in a relationship and like either provide value in, in the form of, of you know bringing them deals that's the best case right you bring yeah you're sourcing deals sourcing deals for them you know saying oh i know this company that's thinking of you know raising blah blah blah. that's right so did you was that how you eventually kind of broke it you started bringing one or two great deals to somebody or no not quite so what i ended up doing was um as that unofficial ambassador, I, I, I connected the entrepreneurs at, on Roosevelt Island with the VC crowd in New York, you know, primarily seed and pre-seed investors who were really interested in what was going on, you know, at this shiny thing in the river. Um, and, you know, I'm going so far as to like, like organize a happy hour in conjunction with like a fund in New York that was like held off campus, that they paid for, like just to bring like, you know, founders, folks who were starting companies and who already had companies while they're there um, to like, just to get to know the team there. And so that was like kind of my niche. And that led to a couple interviews. And but so like, what do, you mean, expect it. what do you mean it led to interviews? Like the, the partners started coming up to you and just saying, hey, you know, you're looking for a job? Well, then the, exactly, you know, knowing that I was looking for a job, um, now you sort of have some like political capital or you're at least like endeared because you're, you're seen as like the, the organizer, you're seen as the person that's bringing people together, which is like half the battle and VC is like sourcing. Right. So, um, it is, but what happens in VC when there's a job opening, depending on the seniority, you know, there's a catch 20, there's an experience catch 22. You want, you know, people have done the job before and the only way to get the experience to do the job is to have done, done the job before. So if you're trying to break in, it's even harder. So I knew that like, I would have to kind of get in that circle somehow and get some like secret, you know, job openings that weren't public, you know, that would be circulating around. Yeah, the shadow um, job market is huge, right? So it is, yeah. how did you start? Like, how much did you do before you started kind of hearing about these roles or these openings and, and landing what would be more considered like a formal interview? Um, like how much, how much, how many events did you put on with like these, was it 10, oh, was man. it two, was it 20? Like, what was the, it? The, there was like two big ones, but it was just more of like an ongoing thing. And, and then I think, you know, subsequent to that, like, of course, like bringing them deals, whether they did them or not. I think if they're high quality, that says something about you. It says something about who you're connected to. And, you know, you know, in DC, you have to be connected to the founder ecosystem. So I think that also is like evidence of that. Um, but basically just building goodwill enough that somebody would even like, you know, give you a, a like warm intro to the partners at a fund who are, who are hiring for a specific role. Like that goes a long, long way because like that's from a peer investor. 
versus you're this MBA student. And tell me about your experience of just like, or expectations, like coming from, you know, you were grinding at a startup, you could have gone, probably gone to investment banking or consulting, made six figures. What was your anticipation or experience kind of like going for these interviews? And like, what was it like the actual more formal interview? Was it more just a conversation because you already had the relationship going and, um, or did you have some interviews that like, where they're like, okay, let's keep talking. And it's, they just, it's just like slow played it. Um, all of those happen. There's no structure. Most of them are conversations. Yeah. Um, these are people who are used to having conversations, but there's no like technical interview. They're not like trying to like, they're not testing no. on like cap tables and like, no, like, I mean, on. your mileage may vary there, but I think not, not there. Yeah. But I ended up not taking any of those offers. Okay. Why? So this is not something I also expected to happen too, but I, you know, I ended up taking an internship versus an actual job. And that's because I got the opportunity to, to have this like post MBA internship at Andreessen Horowitz. And I really wasn't excited about the fact that it was an internship. I was getting married in November of that year. I was like, of all the student debt, like I don't need to be paid $30 an hour to like maybe have a job in three months. That sounds like really the riskiest thing I could do. But once I went for the interview uh, at the office in New York, back then it was just three, I was the third of ultimately the third of like three people who worked there. Now I think it's, it's much much bigger, but um, I kind of saw, I had my first peek behind the curtain of like the whole like Sand Hill Road machine. I was just blown away. This is in my first interview. I was like blown away. And I, I realized, okay, well, I have to do this. I'm going to learn so much more here and I will just fight to stay. I will just, you know, yeah, you know, grind, hustle, whatever it takes for, you know, me to stay here after my internship. And so that's what I did. So there's this internship program at like, is this common? Like at Andreessen versus then not even a program. It's not even yeah. a program. It's so just what do you mean? So a, they were just like, boss is a Cornell alum and was yeah. hiring and from a couple of schools, Cornell being one of them. So I actually had to beat out a couple of my classmates for it. But he was just hiring as an intern and saying, I can't promise you a job after three months because they're just so scrappy. And it was like a new office in New York. That's right. Got it. And so you were like, just hire me. It's fine. I'm getting married. I have all this student debt, but I'm going to roll the dice because I know in this, at least with Andreessen, it's a well-oiled machine or they're going to be bringing a lot of best practices from Sand Hill to the New York office. And you're going to probably learn more there versus like some startup fund or something. Yeah, precisely. And mainly that like, you're, I just felt like I was going to see the like rarest end of the market and for VC, meaning that like the fewest people will get to see behind that curtain versus like most of VC are like smaller funds. I got, I, I was like, got one, at a place that had like a seat at the power in the power dynamics and, you know, had billions of AUM and, you yeah. know, had, you know, you know, amazing companies in its portfolio and was really like a household name. I just felt like I was going to see so much more and learn so much more in that environment that I just couldn't. You had to beat out all these other classmates and other MBAs for the, the lucky internship. role of a $30 an hour internship. Correct. Correct. <laughs> so, I love it. Yes. So my, so, my um, now wife, fiance at the time, you know, that was her experience or her, her reaction to, she was not thrilled. <laughs> I feel like this is actually really important for the listeners to hear is like venture. Like this is very, I feel like it's very common. It's almost like, no, you're gonna have to be here and you're gonna have to prove it. And on top of it, you're not gonna get paid much. Um, okay. So they bring you on. What's your what's your role kind of coming in? What's your expectation of like what the internship's going to be? And then how did you think this is how I land the full time job? So the role was on a team called market development, which sits between the portfolio 
mainly on the enterprise side and then those portfolio companies they're intended customers so mainly fortune 100 companies like big corporates who spend billions a year individually sometimes like jp morgan um, on technology and so that's the market they tap into and it's really interesting it was an interesting window into that into enterprise software at least because i got to be in these like thousands of these meetings where it's us and a couple portfolio founders and then like the cio or cso or cto from jp morgan or goldman or you know you name it and it's you you are sort of like a consultant in that regard as well like you're helping the port codes get ready for those meetings what else you're also helping the corporates like first thing you do is you know we would get like the full download um, and they bear their soul to us about their initiatives, their problems. And this is all in terms of technology. And so then we get consultative and like figure out, well, which of our portfolio companies might actually solve these issues and like, and, and looking forward, like actually might fit within your strategic roadmap for technology that like goes all the way to the top. So we like, well, if, you'll, if you'll spend $30 million a year on this, we can have these guys develop it and like, <laughs> they'll do that. Yeah. It's more so like they have, you know, like they take banks, banks are, are notoriously, um, you know, a couple decades behind the trend in terms of their their infrastructure. You know, the yeah classic examples. There's still mainframes and banks. You know, and we're here in a cloud world. So even moving to cloud in a compliant regulated industry as well, like, is a big issue. So there's a lot of security uh, requirements and and yeah. and you know other sorts of issues that are material to a large invest publicly traded investment bank. So there's just so many problems that are associated with that. These are mainly like gaps in where the market was and our solutions in the form of portfolio companies were like the new ways to solve certain business problems like that from a technology perspective or like higher level just to like run um you know run processes more effectively in some cases what were there were there any assurances given to you this three-month internship that there was a certain percentage given full-time offers or anything like that Zero. No, this wasn't even a program. There was. It wasn't even a program. It was just you. It was just me. Okay. Yeah. And so you're kind of hoping you can stay. You you're doing this. This is right after you graduate. You just start working with them. Not only that, so I made it clear I want to stay, but I also made it clear that I wanted to change. I wanted to be an investor as well, right? So you wanted to be on the investment team. Correct. And I was on a, a, a team that was like adjacent to that, but we're not. We were not involved. We were involved post investment. On that team yeah so you weren't going in on the investment committee meetings and like arguing or like reviewing potential investments and no that's where i wanted to be and so yeah you know that was kind of a hard sell to my boss too i mean he was great about it but like that hey you know thanks for having me by the way i'm going to hustle to stay but i also want to leave your team and do something else yeah so tell me yeah so he was in the market development he was the lead of the market development so he's probably like yeah okay whatever um mm -hmm. so tell me how that played out so I just grinded and I, I like, you know, basically did everything I could to like add value and also like really help that whole organization run better, starting with that pod. And then, uh, you know, looking to, you know, I had specific skills, you know, I was really good at like putting together technology tools. I understood like the power of leveraging off the shelf SaaS tools to like, you know, completely change how a process, internal process, is done. And so I started to like, just, just be proactive and on my own, start doing things and then suggesting them, you know, to my boss once like I had enough evidence that like, Hey, this is actually effective and impressive. So I ended up getting to stay. And then I moved back to the West coast to go work 
uh, out of the uh, Menlo Park HQ, which is a totally different experience too, because like, you know, at the time it was like 150 people versus three. Um, and that was, uh, that was, that was super interesting as well. Cause like, were I was you kind still of, in the market development team there? Technically, yes, but yeah. I was doing some more stuff horizontally. Okay. I was like, you know, my boss was in New York technically. So I was, you know, you were given a little more latitude to do some. I was, stuff. I was hustling because I wanted to stay until, you know, ultimately I realized one day I had an epiphany, like, well, if I'm going to stay, you know, I would be on the enterprise team. I don't really, you know, enterprise software and enterprise, like, you know, networking, security, software defined networking, stuff like that, microservices stuff is, is, I understand it. It's interesting. It's important, but it's not what resonates with me enough that like day in, day out, that's all your like living, sleeping, breathing. So what was, what did you do when you made that realization? So how long were you in Menlo before you kind of said, okay. Um, so I was there, it was a good, it was like a good amount of time after I had arrived. I don't remember exactly. It was a little, little less than a year, but um, I, I ended up leaving and then I, I like wanted to continue with my original mission to, you know, be a venture investor. And I had, like, I had brought in a lot of founders at that point, you know, I got, had gotten more in the world when I was at A16Z on the investment side than um, than I had been when I was in New York. So I felt yep. like that was that was good, and that actually gave me enough insight to realize that this is not what I want to do in this vertical. So I went to want to go to a generalist fund, and so that's how I ended up at Sparrow Ventures, which is kind of the opposite. It's like a hundred twenty five million dollar Series A fund that's a single LP fund backed by Pierre Amidiar, who's the founder of eBay. And uh, it's like, it was like three years old at the time or even less, I mean, it might've been two, but yeah. um, it was the total opposite of that. <laughs> and so what was, yeah, what was it like in the sense of, you know, you're now a generalist, you're looking at everything, networking with everyone. That's right. So I'm a super, super generalist because I'm the guy, the guy with degree in languages, who's like an, sort of an autodidact on the technology side and like taught himself how to code. And so I'm, I'm, I'm really a good generalist. And so I yeah. felt like that would be it was a good fit. Is a good fit for you then. I felt like that'd be a good fit. And so it was interesting too, because that's at a fund of that size versus this, like, you know, relative behemoth, like Andreessen um, at Sparrow, I got to see like broadly horizontally, how a fund runs, how it works. Um, not much fundraising because we had a sole LP, right. but um but just on the operational perspective and the day-to-day. -day. And so that Everything was really else. interesting. Yeah, yeah. And I had a big, I had a lot of say and I had a lot of, you know, my voice mattered a lot because I was one of like, you know, three or four on the investment team, even though the overall team was six or seven. Right. It's interesting. So um, you were there. Is there two years? During the pandemic. Yes. Is there during the pandemic? <laughs> uh, um, uh, so I left last July. Okay. And. Yeah. Tell me about this. Yeah. Tell me how, how this happened. And, and would you say this is typical where it's like, you know, eventually you go become, you know, you work for a few years and then you become a partner somewhere. Um, an it's, not it's not typical. Mm -hmm. I would, you know, but you know, I was also pretty experienced on the, at that point, you know, I had, um, I had built software for basically 10 years and then I had a couple of years of VC under my belt and I had been, you know, very interested in venture capital for a long time. So I, I was not new, even the first time, you know, I technically was a VC, it wasn't anything new or foreign. Yeah. Um, so it's not typical because what most people do is they, 
you either enter really young right out of undergrad and you become an analyst somewhere and you stay for a year or two and you either like get hired as an associate or senior associate somewhere else, mm -hmm. or you go to business school or something like that, or you go to a portfolio company. Um, the other route is less standard, but it's, you kind of just get in randomly. I noticed a lot of people had ended up at Andreessen Horowitz randomly by virtue of working at portfolio companies that had succeeded or failed, or just by getting to know a general partner somehow in some capacity and working together, or by being a, on a board, even a board observer, you know, from another fund that had a shared, you know, or had a co-investment with, you know, A16Z. There's a lot of cross-pollination on boards as well. But, you know, the other path is you go get your MBA and you go try to get in post MBA as like a post MBA senior associate somewhere. And I think that's like one of the hardest paths because there's not a lot of those opportunities. Not a lot of seats. Yeah. It's like private equity, like not a lot of seats. Yeah. That, that's right. And you have to have some X factor too, because if you're a guy who's just like what worked at Deloitte or you're, you're, you know, even if you were in traditional finance, like you basically know nothing about VC. There's nothing aligned versus if you had worked in a startup. Uh, you know, your own or even just your, your blue chip kind of startup as an employee, like that's still more relevant. Um, how did you even thing. land the Sparrow role? Like where did even, how did it even come up? Another shadow, like was they weren't really hiring, but you just like created a role for yourself. How did you, how did No, this was, I just applied. There was you just a, applied. Okay. So it was a yeah. traditional thing. And then I, how I was just, the interview I just applied and it was a long, that, that was a very long process because and I, at that point, I had interviewed a lot of funds and had similar processes where it's like, you know, your basic phone screen to getting to know you to, okay, here's a project. And that's the key. That's the key part of the story. In almost all of these interviews for the more junior roles, like there's going to be some sort of project that's going to, you know, the goal of which is to see how you think and, and would think about, you know, things broadly. So can you give an example of like a project? Yeah, so I did this, you know, when I was thinking of the enterprise world, um, I went back on my original thinking, thinking, well, I need to get a job. So like maybe since I was working on an enterprise team at A6&Z, maybe I just try another enterprise fund. And so I did some interviews there and I'm glad it all didn't work out. But like I had to do this project uh, there that was um, basically this like whole overview of uh, this like technology called Service Mesh, which was still pretty nascent and like super like super like technical and very far away from like the end user environment technology. We're talking about like, this is like in the DevOps sort of world. And it's not something that's like really Googleable or at the time it wasn't in the sense that like, it was so new that I had to like truly find my own like unique perspective on it. And it was really technical. And um, I spent a lot of time on that. And I did a, a pretty okay job, but I realized, you know, too, like, ah, this, is, this is what I want to do yeah. <laughs> again, again. So I like, okay, I woke up again from, from that, that dream. And then at Sparrow, I had some project, but it was, it was more about um, analyzing a company, but of my choosing in a specific space, like they have these three core themes uh, that they invest in, even the generalist, like uh, health and health and human connection, um, uh, oh my God, I'm forgetting already. Um, <laughs> uh, so sorry, climate sustainability. And there's, there's, there's one other, but, um, you know, pick a company in any of those and give a whole like presentation on why or why you would invest. And then, you know, just basically analyze the opportunity, uh, 
and present your thinking. So I did that and I figured, you know, with all how did of you, these- How did you choose on a startup and how, how would people think about screening? Um, well, I think you could do the obvious thing, right? Which is pick the obvious company that um, was going to succeed or that had succeeded already. And you're just going to like triple down on success. Uh, I wanted to actually pick a company that I would pass on. So I picked a company that I knew would be a no, but it would be a nuanced no. Like it wouldn't be a clear no either. That's the opposite of that, which is like, okay, yeah, well, if the company is, you know, losing, you know, $10 million a month and they've got, you know, 300K in the bank, like anybody could pass on that company. Yeah. But, or the CEO is like, just got <laughs> convicted of a felony. You know, those are easy passes. I wanted like a very nuanced pass and to give a thoughtful reason as to why. Yeah. And um, so that's what I did. I found, I, I don't remember the company, but it was some app um, that was, you know, I really don't even remember, to be honest, I could dig it out somewhere. I saw the presentation, but like more important was the research that went into it and the whole like market perspective that framed it. And then, you know, what I would want to see, and here's where I leveraged my product background from building products for so long, which is yeah. like really talking about product metrics and, um, understanding if you don't even know this stuff right now, at least conveying what would you want to know if you were looking at this deal for real? Because I wasn't looking at a real deal. So I didn't, I had like less information than these yeah. would about a company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very cool. That's awesome, man. So how are things kind of now that you're a partner and you're kind of. Yeah. So what happened life? after that was yeah. um, started to team up with a friend of mine um, and we partnered up to raise a little pre-seed and seed fund but it was too small to support two people because uh, of the management fee structure. It could only support one. And well, I, so I had a job at the time and thankfully we were doing exclusively series A investing and this is a pre-seed and seed fund. So I, you know, I cleared with my boss because I didn't want to have any conflict to do it in secret. It arguably made a lot of sense because there's this, you know, you're talking to all these like seed stage companies that are going to be raising an A one day. And so you're already like, in that mix yeah find the best ones and then feed them to us yeah no, i get it that, that, so that's right so what's your what was your what was the size of the fund like, like a million bucks a couple million bucks what was it uh, it was 10 million dollars okay so you had something to start with and the checks were what like well this is a, a fund one and so it was a very long process to raise that fund so it took a year it took a year to close on the full amount and at the time my partner his name's matt conwell he, he became like a pretty famous or well-known twitter vc um, it's one of the most visible guys out there. And that sort of happened in conjunction with this. Um, so, you know, I left in last July and at that point we had almost raised the whole fund. Um, what's happened since then is we've had, we've of course closed on the whole fund, but we've invested in nearly 30 companies. And on paper, we've done really well, at least on paper, you know, I can't take full credit for that. The market has been like, insane insane and yeah. so so it's kind of hard not to do well but you know we we think you know hopefully that like we're doing a little bit better than you know mm -hmm. there's some alpha in there basically yeah and um lps seem to think that too so we're raising um a much bigger fund to you know somewhere um in the 75 to 125 region it's a big to, deal it is um so hopefully you know so we're just getting started on that now but um i will be general partner mac and i will be the two GPs of that fund. Mm -hmm. And that's where we are, I guess, today. Super exciting. So now it's a lot of, since the first 10 million has been deployed, is a lot of your time spent on, you know, just uh, portfolio company work sort of helping them. Um, or is it, or are you kind of still looking for new deals and 
there's a way you can kind of tap and there's some initial commitments? So uh, definitely both. We're not fully invested. You know, we, we have still like quarterly capital calls. So we still have capital coming in. So yeah. we, we have, and then we have reserves. So we've invested most of it, but not all of it. So we definitely are speaking with founders. Most of my day is talking to founders, either you know, new founders um, or you know, helping portfolio, yep. which is always, always on our mind. I, I, for a, a, a couple months, I also dropped into one of our portfolio companies to help out from July up until just the other month with some specific issues around BD and helping them. They were you know, crazy story, but they like, went from zero to about 300,000 users in eight weeks. And so, you know, I, I was then like uh, drawing on my previous startup experience because I have gotten comfortable with that kind of craziness. You know, I kind of feed on it. Yeah. It was really nice to sort of be in, back in that for a little bit. But so I dropped in to help. Now, like that company is doing great and they don't need me anymore. Yeah. So, um, but that perfectly coincided with like our fundraise, just kicking off our fundraise. So yeah, basically sourcing and portfolio and now LP type of uh, networking and, and just kind of uh, making our way around the, the fundraising circuit for those who invest in VC funds. It's great. And so do you feel like, you know, looking back at all of your kind of moves and all of your, your, your whole story from college now, do you get any kind of words of words of wisdom? If you were talking to yourself when you were younger or to the listeners out there, who maybe, maybe partway through your similar path? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. A lot. I mean, it's hard on one hand because I like, you know, firmly believe that here you are where you are, you know, by, by virtue of where you've been. And I think like, that's hard to argue with. So I don't know if I'd change anything because I don't know how that would change what I'm doing now. I'm happy where I am now, but um, I would have definitely been more thoughtful about what I wanted to do in college and kind of looked ahead more. I was kind of like, I was, I kind of had the sense, like, I, I didn't really care. I just was a little too overly optimistic that things would work out. And so I, I'd been more um, thoughtful about, you know, choosing a major, right? I could have studied a couple of languages. I could have also done, you know, computer science or something as well. I didn't need like three languages, but I just tripled down. But um, also I learned a ton about the value of being able to teach yourself things really, really quickly. But I would never, I don't think I would, again, personally start a company right out of college. That really was hard because I didn't know much. It was a great learning experience, but it's learning experience that comes from getting punched in the face every day. And for six and years. For six years. But there comes a point where you like, you kind of can look back and go, wow, I've learned a ton. But then I got there and saw the other end of that mountain range. And I was like, oh my God, I know nothing. Because <laughs> you're seeing the goal on the other side. You know enough to know how little you know. Yeah. Um, but, but at the same time, like I could have gotten, you know, valuable operating experience at another startup and i wouldn't have been so like poor and destitute in those years which is important because that's like a foundation for um you know as you continue rising your 20s and as a guy who only did startups at the top business school you know i had definitely made less money than my peers because i was so devoted to this company and it, i feel like had, had i gone work somewhere especially at like a name brand startup i would have had good experience i would have had money more money and i could have brought both back to you know be even a more effective founder later on, but I wasn't thinking like that. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I, I look at you know I've been running Wall Street Oyster for fifteen years or sixteen years and um, over a decade full time, 
And I just, there's so many times I look back and I'm like, oh my gosh, why didn't I do that earlier? Or, oh, what a big mistake. <laughs> just, you know, obvious things that, you know, you don't, you don't know what you don't know. Right. So um, that's right. Yeah. And that's the, that's the, always the danger is you're going to turn around, you're going to wake up one day and realize what you left on the table. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, no, truly. That's my, uh, that's, that's my thing. I think I need to have more conversations with like uh, mentors. Maybe you could be a mentor for me. Um, <laughs> okay, I, I, trade. I, I was, I'm always, I'm actively accepting new mentors in my life. As yeah, well. So, I'm, well, I'm uh, light in the mentor department, <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing your story. Um, I think, you know, I think there's a lot of good, good lessons here. If people kind of peel it back, but yeah. Um, thank you so much for sharing your, no, your wisdom. Thank you. No, thanks for having me, Patrick. This is, this is great. And, um, uh, Look, it was great, great chat and you did awesome. Thanks for the interview. <laughs> and thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way, patrick at wallstreetoasis.com. And until next time. 